if we are looking for what is most surprising or interesting or attention-grabbing in the scripture story for this morning, I suppose it would have to be this, that Simon, who we will later come to know as Peter, has a mother-in-law. Imagine that. I mean, we think of the first four disciples, the fishermen, Simon and Andrew and James and John, as kind of go-it-alone, free-from-family-responsibility guys. When they leave their nets and follow Jesus, they seem not to hesitate. They seem not to even look back over their shoulders. That's kind of the picture we have in our minds, that they are single-minded, no-hesitation followers. Sure, James and John leave their father Zebedee in the boat, so we know they have family, but that fact seems not to hold them back. And then, here in this morning's scripture story, just a paragraph past the story where they are called from their nets to come and follow Jesus, they are circling back around to the home of Simon and Andrew, and the first thing we are told is that Simon's mother-in-law is there in the house, and she is sick with a fever. And maybe as you read that, you are already reading ahead because you see some kind of healing coming. But as I read it, before I skip on to that healing part, I find myself pausing for a moment. Wait, Simon has a mother-in-law? That means he's married or he was married. Is he still married? Is he widowed? Does he have children? The information that he has, the mother-in-law has all kinds of potential implications. Who's taking care of the family while Simon is now running around with Jesus? Does his family have any voice in this decision to answer the call? Who's taking care of the household? How are they paying the bills? What about his family's needs? I've got lots of questions that arise just from knowing that Simon has a mother-in-law. And don't you know, the gospel writer Mark won't answer a single one of my questions. Mark is silent. There's no information about the rest of Simon's family. There's no information about his mother-in-law, not even her name. The only thing we get in the story is that she is sick, that she has a fever. Instead of giving us information that responds to what I am curious about, the family questions, Mark points us on toward matters of ministry. Specifically, the matter of Jesus' healing ministry. The story could be about Simon's family. Instead, it is about Jesus' ministry. The story goes in that direction. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. No more family status information, just what Jesus does for this woman. Simon's mother-in-law is sick. The disciples tell Jesus. Jesus takes her by the hand, lifts her up from her bed. The fever leaves, and she gets back to her work, the work of household hospitality. Now, given that this is the focus of the story, not the identity, but the illness of this woman, what catches your attention in that? That she has a fever? That the disciples turn to Jesus? That Jesus heals her? If I put aside my curiosity about the family and instead focus on the act of healing, what catches my attention in this particular story is this line. He, Jesus, came 
and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Why does that line catch my attention? Maybe it's because we are in a time, this time of pandemic, when all too often we have been denied the opportunity of touch, the chance to hug, or at least to shake hands. Maybe that's the reason why I'm drawn to this image of Jesus taking this woman by the hand. Maybe that's why it stands out for me just now. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. She's sick. She has a fever. She is likely contagious with something. Everything about our current situation, these days in which we are living, warns us that Jesus shouldn't be in the same room with her, much less touching her. What they don't know about illness then, we do know now. Be careful around someone who is sick. Sickness can spread. And at the same time, we know how important touch is. In these days especially, we know that there is no substitute for holding a hand, especially when someone is sick. Phone calls are not the same thing. Window visits are not the same thing. Zoom is not the same thing. Where there is illness, touch can be risky. Touch can spread the illness. At the same time, where there is illness, touch is necessary. Touch can be healing. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' ministry of healing takes all sorts of shapes and directions. And the healing he offers to people comes to them by different means. Last week's story had Jesus healing a man just by using his commanding voice, telling an unclean spirit, be silent and come out of him. Jesus does that quite a few times in Mark's gospel, declaring a person healed or commanding them to be released from their illness or their disability. But just as often, Jesus uses touch. He reaches out. He puts saliva on the blind man's eyes. He puts healing hands on a leper. He puts his fingers into the ears and mouth of a deaf and mute man. He lays his hands on a young man with convulsions. The use of touch seems important in the ministry of healing, especially for people who cannot seem to be reached with just words like those with sensory deprivation, or children perhaps, or a person with an untouchable condition like leprosy. Jesus seems to use touch at those times in particular. And here in this story, why does he take Simon's mother-in-law by the hand to lift her up to heal her? Is it because she's delirious with fever? Has her sense of awareness been diminished by this fever so that she will not hear clear instructions or expressions of compassion from Jesus? And so touch is the only way to reach her. It could be. But for whatever reason, if I sit with this story, if I sit with Jesus at Simon's house 
in the room where Simon's mother-in-law is suffering from a fever, watching Jesus interact with her, if I go there in my imagination, I feel comforted, assured, by knowing that Jesus is a healer whose compassion includes his hands. That touch is one of his best tools. I've said to my daughter throughout the pandemic that I need her to be careful, to wear her mask at school, to practice social distancing, to not take any unnecessary risks in potentially exposing herself to COVID. Because if she gets it, I'm going to get it. Why? Because she is a person who requires a lot of hugs. She wants me to put my arms around her so I can fold her into an embrace and so that she can stick her cold nose in that warm spot between my neck and chin. She wants the assurance of touch, so I give that to her. I do not have a barrier of COVID protection between her and me. If she gets sick, I'm going to get sick. Is that the way it has to be? Yes, that's the way it has to be. Because there are times, there are circumstances, there are persons for whom touch is that important. Touch is healing. Of course, touch isn't always holding a hand in the quite literal sense. Sometimes people touch us by touching the things of our lives that we need them to touch, touching our hearts, touching our feelings, touching our fears. People reach out in ways that are physical, but also in ways that are emotional or spiritual. And we know that we have been touched by them, touched by their attentiveness, touched by their friendship, by the sharing of grief, by their presence, by their empathy, by their kindness by their accompaniment, touched and lifted up and cured of our fever. In an essay titled, Two More Stones, Episcopalian pastor Lisa Lisa Bernheisel talks about the way her friend touches her life as she moves through a course of treatment for cancer. Bernheiser has cancer in her colon, her lungs, and her liver. She has gone through an aggressive form of chemotherapy and the cancer has receded after 10 rounds of this chemo, but she still has two rounds to go. She reports that along with the chemo, she has sought good health with changes in her diet, by practicing yoga, and by walking a labyrinth. It's her friend, who is also named Lisa, who walks the labyrinth with her. With two more rounds of chemo to go, 10 down and two to go, Bernheiser writes, Lisa and I have walked labyrinths together for a few years. We have walked together when we were grieving, angry, or learning to let go of past hurts. I was there in the hospital with her and her family on the day her father died. I was honored and humbled to preach and preside at his funeral. We also share the same name, and that makes us smile. As we walk together in a labyrinth surrounded by gardens, we sense God is walking with us. 
I've had those kinds of profound and intimate experiences after my walks. I knew I needed that kind of spiritual support to face the last two rounds of my chemo regimen. I needed to return to God, my center, my rock, so I asked Lisa to walk with me again. Before we entered the labyrinth, wearing masks and socially distanced, I picked up 10 large stones, each representing a round of chemo I had endured. Each stone was heavy. Some were rough, some were smooth, one was intricate with beautiful fossils, and some were plain with a few spots. Lisa also picked up two large stones that fit in the palm of her hand. Those were the next two rounds of chemo. She said she would carry them for me until we got to the center. It was early morning and the sun and clouds were beautiful. The green grass and trees shimmered with morning dew. The birds flying nearby seemed to have something on their minds. Bees went about their morning work collecting pollen from the flowers. I followed Lisa into the labyrinth, each of us holding our stones. I dropped my rocks as I went. Number one, shortly after entering. Number two and three as I turned a corner. Number four, my favorite rock with the fossils fell out of my hand, which made me so mad that I threw rocks number five and six. As I let them go, I felt lighter, but I recognized each as its own blessing unique in shape, size, look, and feel, like my chemotherapy rounds, hard and painful and yet still sacred. Seven and eight and nine dropped easily, but 10 did not. By the time I finally let it go, I had reached the center. Lisa gestured for me to take the last two stones from her. They were so large, so heavy. I wanted nothing to do with them, my hands were lighter now, and I did not want to feel that weight again. I just wanted to go into the center and commune with God without taking them on. But when Lisa said, I could only carry them so long for you, now these are yours to take, I knew she was right. Reluctantly, I took the stones and held them in my hands. They fit perfectly. They felt familiar. I squeezed them tight and found they felt good. I saw they were both actually quite beautiful. These next two rounds of chemo will be hard, I thought, and yet there will be beauty and mystery revealed there too. Standing there holding the stones my friend had carried, I continued to reflect on the previous five months. Those 10 chemotherapy sessions are now part of the labyrinth of my life, but what comes next is uncertain. It had felt good to let Lisa carry the weight of that fear for a while. Now it was time to release it to the one who can bear it all. I stacked the last two stones in the labyrinth center, center rock like a cairn, a memorial to another sacred moment on this journey. I remembered the words of Hannah, there is no holy one like the Lord, no one beside you, there is no rock like our God. Then Lisa and I walked out of the labyrinth together. Lisa's friend, Lisa, doesn't cure her cancer and doesn't physically lift her from her bed of suffering. She just carries the two stones for her and then hands them back to her when it's time.
so Lisa can set them down into the care of God, into God's hands. So the touch we sometimes need for healing can come in the holding and sharing of stones that both sets of hands have held. And it also comes in the walking with into the labyrinth and out again. I want you to think this week about your healing hands, your healing touch. How are you lifting up the ones in your life who are hurting? And if you are hurting, where are you seeking healing? Whose hands have held stones for you for a while? Whose hand is lifting you up, curing your fever, helping you to your feet? It seems from these early stories in Mark's gospel that yes, the calling of Christ is the call to follow him. But it is also the call to participate in his ministry of healing. To see the pain and suffering of others, to be patient with their needs, to extend our hands. May God hold us in God's hands and hold the parts of our lives that we can no longer hold and heal us of all that prevents us from rising from our bed, all that prevents us from living good news lives. May God's gift of healing of touch flow to you and from you. May it be so. Amen. Please join me in some moments of silent prayer and reflection.